Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. hillsdale.edu slash vdh. <laughs> Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show, the fourth of four special podcasts we're doing while Victor is in Israel. I'm Jack Fowler. I'm the host. Victor is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor, of course, is the best-selling author. His most recent bestseller was The Dying Citizen, Farmer, Classicist, Military Historian, Essayist at American Greatness. You can find everything Victor writes at his website, victorhanson.com. Some of what he writes is exclusive. You need to subscribe. I'll tell you about that a little later. Today, we're going to talk about things military. And we're going to begin, well, Victor is in Israel. And we're going to talk about some of the wars that have happened in Israel in the last half century and more. And we'll get to that right after these important messages. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, They've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with, 
and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash VICTOR50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash Victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, and use the code Victor50, that's code Victor50, at factormeals.com slash Victor50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. So we're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Victor, as you know, of course you know, and as our listeners, I hope they know, many sent questions uh, anticipating these four special episodes. And we thank those who sent in questions and let's rock and roll. Here's one. As a military historian, could Victor analyze Israel's wars, especially from the point of view of the unique nature of the IDF, a few of its renowned military strategists, and some of its groundbreaking military tactics? Victor, have at it. Well, I mean, it, the IDF was formed by European emigres that had training in the French, but especially the British military, and they mastered and they were non-commissioned and commissioned officers. So there was a European tradition that these uh, British citizens brought with them to Israel. And that was sort of the basis for the IDF. And they had a force multiplying philosophy that they figured that given the landscape in which the state of Israel was founded, they were never going to have numerical parity. And they were going to be vulnerable because of the terrain and the geography of the Middle East, i.e. there's not a lot of mountains or jungles or foliage. So air power would be very important and they would have very little time. So once if the Arabs on rare occasions would unite and cross their easily accessible borders, they wouldn't have very much time. So they created this very strange, brilliant system of reserves. So the Israeli army was able to triple, literally, in three to, to 10 days by people going directly to their units, not going to some place and getting a uniform, but they'd have depots, get the uniform, 
and they trained during the year. They were like the Swiss. It was a nation in arms. And they were preemptory military. They, if they felt there was a sort of Damocles over their heads, they would take the initiative as they did in the 67 war. So they had certain strategic goals. And one of them was that if the state of Israel was attacked, they would not limit their reaction to a defensive war within Israel's border. So in 1973, to take one example, if they are attacked, then they're going to unleash the IDF on, I think about the day fifth, they were in Syria, and they could have easily gone in and destroyed Damascus. They could have destroyed Amman, Jordan. They could have got, they, <laughs> Sharon was on his way with not a very large force, but it was wide open all the way to Cairo. So there was that preemptory nature and defense to establish kind of a defense in depth. And then, of course, the Israeli Air Force was considered preeminent. And that was because it had to be. And then finally, with their, uh, I think it was Demona, their nuclear facilities, they're very quiet about it, but they have a nuclear deterrent. They have to be that way because when Ralph and Johnny, the second to the supreme leader at one point, I think 20 years ago, he, he disputes that term, but he, he was reported to say that he liked this idea of Israel because half the world Jews were in one place. You didn't have to hunt for the, you know, the 20 million Jews in the world. There were all 12 million or 11 or eight at that time, probably nine. And they were therefore, quote unquote, a one bomb state. So when you have enemies like that, the Air Force has to take the initiative of being preemptory. They've also... I had an ambiguous relationship with the United States because they depend wholly on American supplied arms and technical, I shouldn't say assistance because they're so sophisticated technologically themselves, but collaboration. And yet, especially during the days when we were dependent on oil imports, our national interest as perceived by both parties was not always in line with Israel because of Saudi Arabia and et cetera. So we have this tense relationship. And now with the rise of anti-Semitism, which is more or less a left-wing monopoly and the progressive nature of the Democratic Party, the left has sold Israel out. So all of the great, all they have left is that shrill, oh, you're an anti-Semite. So Trump was an anti-Semite, we were told by the left, ad nauseum. Anti-Semite, anti-Semite. Now forget about Jared Kushner was this, son-in-law and his daughter converted to Judaism, forget that he moved the embassy to Jerusalem, that he declared the Golden Heights would be forever Israel. Forget all of that. He was considered an anti-Semite, but the Democratic Party has severed its allegiance to Israel. Well, there's just some general thoughts about the political and, and strategic nature of Israeli defense. Victor, I'm just making an assumption here that you know Benjamin Netanyahu, and maybe you know him a little more than in passing. And if that's true, what are your thoughts about him as a leader? Well, a former leader, I assume he's going to want to be leader again. Someday. I don't know him. I, that's an oversight. I, don't, I know yeah. uh, members of his family, put it that way. And I've okay. talked talk to him. But uh, I think the Netanyahu phenomenon is only seen through the lenses of foreign policy. And what he did was he brought a Milton Friedman sort of free market deregulation to Israel. So when you when you see these things that are going on in Israel, or it's oil developments, gas developments, working on the East Med pipeline project, which Joe Biden is trying to stop, by the way, and the incredible gains in wealth in Israel and 
its power, uh, a lot of that is attributable to Netanyahu. And then, you know, it's kind of Trumpian in the sense that you can say all you want about pro or con Netanyahu, but the fact of the matter is when he was in power, you didn't have the violence you saw recently in Israel. It just didn't happen because the IDF knows where everybody is that is potentially a terrorist and is planning a terrorist operation, and they preempted them. And usually when you had an Obama or Biden in office, they had undue leverage over a non-Netanyahu leader, and they would tell them not to, not to be preemptory and then take the blow foreign policy was what the Americans and the Israel left sort of settled on. So I have a lot of respect for him because under Netanyahu, Israel was not only economically a powerhouse, and it was very confident that it could protect its own, but it, it was starting with Trump with this Abrams Accord to create something that was unfathomable 20 years ago and a strategic alliance between Egypt, the largest country in the Middle East by population, and Saudi Arabia down the line, the wealthiest, but you know, Kuwait, they would have, by now, we would have had 15 or 20 Arab countries, I think, in alliance with Israel, and they would have basically isolated Iran from the type of things they're now capable of. And we wouldn't have an Iran deal 2.0. Iran would right. not be a partner of China and Russia. Russia would not basically be putting Iran under its nuclear umbrella. So it was a disaster for Israel, the 2020 election. And this Ukrainian war, as we talked earlier, is kind of a disaster because the Israelis have been criticized for being a little bit late in condemning or sanctioning Russia. Russia is basically a patron of Iran now and allows Israel on rare occasions to retaliate within Syrian airspace. And I think more or less would have stayed out a preemptory Israeli attack. And that's not true now, I don't think. Yeah. Well, let me ask a question from another listener mentioned Russia, you just mentioned Ukraine. So here's the question. Victor, do you think we are in a slow creep towards war with Russia in Ukraine, NATO and or US? Are there similarities to what is happening now in Ukraine to events that led us into war in Vietnam? Well, it's more like Yugoslavia because the, the nature of the enemy is Euro European-like it's on the European-Asian landmass. We have allies in the region. The terrain and geography is favorable for American firepower. The Ukrainians resonate as Europeanized people more than, say, the Taliban that were pre-modern. And more importantly, for all the politicalization and diminution of the U.S. armed forces under Milley and Austin, if the United States Air Force were to intervene in Ukraine, they would destroy the Soviet Air Force. And there's no way in the world the Soviet Union tactically could stand up to American forces, much less NATO forces, in that type of environment. If we didn't invade Russia, we kept out of Russia, just fought within Ukraine. But the point is, if we did that, Putin would know that we were doing that, and he would be humiliated, and that would be synonymous with his loss of power. And he wouldn't let that happen. So he would try to threaten or maybe use a tactical nuclear weapon. And nobody knows if he crossed that threshold, whether he dropped, let's say, a half a kiloton weapon on Kiev or on a battle, a base or something, or use a small missile, even an artillery shell. If he were to do that, 
how do you reply? I mean, we have conventional weapons that would be more destructive in theory than a small tactical nuclear weapon, maybe. But the fact that it was nuclear would really change things. And there would be a lot of people that would be demanding a retaliatory strike in kind. So I'm very favorable to the Ukrainians. I want them to win, but I, we have to be very careful when Joe Biden or Lloyd Austin brag that we're going to make sure that we so damage Russia that it's never going Of course, we're going to do that. But you don't want to quite say that because they're right. nuclear power. You don't want to push them against the wall. They have to have an off ramp or a lot of people are going to kill who don't need to die. So we've got, we have to get in our minds with Zelensky. This is take a map and draw like Churchill did with Stalin even though he's highly criticized for it. This is what we can keep, which is the vast majority of Ukraine. But this 8 to 10% that's on the Russian border, that's mostly Russian-speaking and may well want to join Russia and want some kind of puppet government, do we want to go liberate that? To go liberate that, I think, is going to start another war, a big right. war. And so that's where we are today. Well, I'm not going to ask you to reap this. I don't think this would be a repeat question to what you how you just answered the previous question but someone let me just ask what another listener presents could he that means you victor comment on the quote-unquote long game with russia given their weapons of mass destruction huge resources and growing deference to china methinks a kissinger would seek a face-saving compromise for russia so that may be a little more nuanced than what you just Address, but but also, Victor, I, I think it's is it important to distinguish between Russia's long game versus Putin? I mean, when if Putin kicked the bucket tomorrow, would would Russia have a different long game than Putin's long game? If yeah, there is well, even I, one. I would just say if we survey Russian history from the czars to the Soviets to the Yeltsin transition to the Putin era, does anybody know a liberal politician? that came into power. I don't. I don't. So this idea that a lot of the left have that we're going to humiliate Putin and then all of these westernized Russians in exile in Europe, the United States are going to rush back and they're going to have some kind of, I don't know, Minneapolis or Wisconsin democratic government. It's not going to happen. It's not going to look like, as I say, Cornell. I just don't see it happening. And so Russia is going to be autocratic and you have to put yourself into the enemy's position. And, and then you have to ask yourself when you go to war, what do you want and what cost are you willing to pay at what point and at what point beyond it you're not going to. So we're telling the Ukrainians, you're going to fight for your existence. You've saved Western Ukraine and you've saved Eastern Ukraine in a way. I mean, he has the power to destroy it. And now you're fighting for 60 to 70 percent Russian speaking territory that he wants to institutionalize as non-Ukrainian. And we understand that if he were to do that, he would always be a thorn in your side and always want to at any moment invade you and send a signal. We know all that. So the point is, what's the strategy? The strategy is arm them to the teeth and put a plebiscite, some type of negotiated settlement over the, the borderlands have a plebiscite. I have a feeling they'd probably vote to, to be aligned with Russia and accept it. And then weaponize so that if he goes in any other place, you're going to make him pay an exorbitant price. And the cost of benefit analysis is not worth it. But you can't talk to these zealots. They say, no, no, we're going to win. We're going to get them all out of Ukraine. 
you know, we're going to get rid of Vladimir Putin. We're going to have a no-fly zone. We're going to put America. So just think of that. We've just humiliated ourselves in the greatest military defeat in 50 years. And the people who engineered that, Lloyd Al Austin, Mark Milley, Joe Biden, are going to do what? Get us involved with a nuclear Russia? I don't, I don't understand the logic. Supply them to the teeth, great. Arm them, great. But let's not turn this into a quasi-war with Russia. And the reader's comments are well taken. Kissinger said that again and again. We've said it often that Russia should not be closer to China than it is to us, and China not to Russia than it is to us. We know that right. triangulation. But what I'm worried about now is that these zealots on their high horses and all these lectures the Biden administration has given to Saudi Arabia, now to India, to Russia, of course, and to China. They all deserve it. I understand that. But you're making lectures from a position of weakness. Right. Weakness. Biden froze the defense budget. He begged Putin not to hack. He begged him, begged him to pump more oil. He, he was humiliated in Afghanistan. He had to have his pride flag in his uh, gender studies program at Kabul. Okay, they Same. look at that, these hardcore cynics, as weakness. Right. When you lecture them and say, India, you're going to sanction them or we're going to go after your human rights record. Or he, he says to Saudi Arabia, you, your Saudi royal family has done this and this and this, and we don't want anything, but, but, so, but you still have to pump oil. We're creating an anti-American Right. Western League of China and Russia, of course, but also India. India. Can you imagine forcing India, which is a yeah, great potential ally, into into adversary? They, or they just- think Modi, they have this idea of the left that Viktor Orban and Modi and all these people are, you know, these horrible right wing people. And we're going to get rid of them somehow. And the Saudis, we're going to get we've alienated the Saudis. They're, they're going to probably deal with. I think they're going to turn to the Chinese and say, we'll give you more oil than Iran will. Just get Iran off our backs. Yeah. So we went through this 2012 and in Syria with John Kerry inviting the Russians back in. But, you know, I read these essays by very liberal people who appease Putin under reset from 2009 to 2015, 16. And they take no culpability for creating this monster by their appeasement. And yet now they all want to go to war with him. Yeah. Well, Victor, we have some questions from a listener about Nazi Germany, and we will get to these questions right after these important messages. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com 
and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. This is the fourth of four special episodes that we're doing while Victor is in Israel. I mentioned before, victorhanson.com. Victor writes a lot of content there that's called Ultra, and you need to subscribe in order to Read it. It's $5 a month, $50 a year. You're depriving yourself if you're not subscribing. I heartily recommend it. Go to victorhanson.com and sign up. For me, uh, hey, I work for the Center for Civil Society. Actually, I'm the director. If you're interested in strengthening civil society, check out our site, centerforcivilsociety.com. And I also write a weekly free email newsletter that gives some about a dozen recommendations of worthwhile things that have been written the previous week. No strings attached. It's called Civil Thoughts, and you can sign up for that at civilthoughts.com. So, Victor, here's a lengthy, this is a set of questions, and it's a part A and a part B. And this is from a young man, admirer of yours. I'm pretty sure he's from Rhode Island. So here's what he wrote me. Could Professor Hansen provide any insight into the circumstances taking place within Germany during the two decades following the conclusion of World War I. Here are the string of questions. What drove so many people to follow the lunatic in Adolf Hitler? Was it the economic situation, ideology, betterness from the Treaty of Versailles and the way that World War I ended for Germany? How could millions of, quote, ordinary citizens, end quote, eventually construct the concentration death camps and sent so many people to the crematoriums. To me, there are no circumstances in the world that could exist in which so many people could commit such evil. It is simply incomprehensible. And yet it did happen. Also, he didn't add this. I, I will. The German people, as nations go, were pretty literate relative to others. So, you know, smart, a smart European nation did these things. So, Victor, uh, would you address this ball of questions? There's a lot there, but in people's whole lives, the great German historian, great Gordon Craig, wrote a lot about this. But with German unification between 1864 and 1871, there was a blood and soil element to combining German-speaking peoples in this huge unification, which created the German problem because you had the most industrious people, and now they were the largest people, and they were in the center of Europe, and they would exercise influence that would be commiserate with their economic strength, and that, and people didn't know what to do with it. But one of the resonant themes of unification was a racial argument, and that is 
discussed by Nietzsche. It's in Hegel. It goes in Oswald Spengler. It goes back to the lunatic racialist that there was something about Germany and this mythical tradition that was unlike the rest of Europe because the polluting Roman Empire never crossed the Danube and the Rhine in number. And Germany then was an, and not a Romance language. And it was a tribal, racially pure people. And that was essential to the foundational myth, unlike ours. I mean, Hannah Nicole Jones may say all she wants, but we did not have a racial mythology as Germany did. These were the mythical Germanii from Tacitus's Germanica, Germanica. And they were the unified people that had a common. To be German under this new nationhood, it wasn't just enough to live in Germany and to speak Germany. You had to look German. And that was the seeds for this Aryan philosophy that fed in to the Third Reich. That was one element. And the other was German power. And they had been left out because they were not unified and they were fragmented during the great heyday of colonialism in the 18th century and the early 19th century. So France got its Algeria and Morocco and Britain and Syria and France got, uh, I mean, British got everything they wanted in Asia and Egypt, et cetera, et cetera. And what did Germany get? They got very little. And they felt very upset about that. They got some places in Africa. And then there was World War I, in which we did something very stupid. We punished an enemy psychologically and rhetorically, but not, uh, not materially. By that, I mean Germany invaded Belgium and France. And when the war ended, they were 70 miles inside the borders of France and Belgium. And we stopped at the border of Germany, unfortunately, because of Woodrow Wilson's lunatic ideas. But had they listened to John Pershing and others, they would have gone into Germany and they would have occupied the country and they would have put a gun to a defeated people and said, you lost the war and here's why. Instead, we sent everybody home in November by the time of the Versailles Treaty, which remember was in January of 1919. There was nobody really enough to enforce uh, any of the edicts of the Versailles Treaty. Then we had these 400 and something articles. If you read the treaty, the war guilt clause says Germany started the war, it is guilty. Okay, it must pay reparations. But I know that they created the Czech state and Yugoslavia came out of it. And I understand East Prussia and the Danzig Corridor, but compare that treaty to what Germany had planned to inflict on France in 1914 with the September program. That was their blueprint for an end of World War I or what they had inflicted on France. And well, I'm sorry, what, could you explain that a little bit? What was yeah, the September it was, program? It was Reisling, it was a professor. He, he ended up at Columbia and he said, once we cross the Marne and we get into central France, we have to have a plan because the war will be over. It'll be over in 1914. What started in August will be done by December. So we have to have ports on the Atlantic Ocean. We're boxed in in the, in the Baltic Sea, and they can stop us from getting out, the British. And it's frozen there, and we only can use it in the warmer months. So we need to carve off a sliver on the Atlantic coast, and then we have to make that part of Germany. And we have to take the Alsace-Lorraine, which they did, and uh, which they you know, they, they were occupied. And then we have to 
make France a, a subordinate to a German mercantile system. So it was pretty harsh after 1871. That was the terms they dictated to the French. In 1918, in February, they dictated even harsher terms to the Russians. They occupied 1 million square miles of Eastern Europe and Russia and 50 million people under Brest-Litovsk Treaty, which the Soviets sold Russia out. Okay, so when you look at the treaties in their ascendance or in their victories they inflicted on others, the Versailles Treaty was a joke. It didn't really punish them. But it did say, we're going to punish you and you started the war and you're going to be a liberal democracy like we are. However, we're not going to occupy your country. We're not going to tell you what to do. We're not going to any of that stuff. And that was a, the worst thing you can do is to insult somebody without ensuring that they won't be able to hit you back. And you combine that with the blood and soil traditions of this new unified country and the idea that it never felt that it lost the war. By 1930, 29, 28, Adolf Hitler was screaming and yelling in Bavaria, things like, can anybody here tell me one foreign soldier set foot in German soil after World War? And where, where did we surrender? We surrendered, my Fuhrer, we surrendered in Belgium, we surrendered in France. Yes, we surrendered on the move. And did anybody tell me, did we lose the war to Russia? No, my Fuhrer, we occupied all of Russia, we defeated it. And yet we lost the war. Now, why did we lose the war? Because we were stabbed in the back. There were revolts in our Navy. There were revolts in our factory by communists and Jews. That was the line that he took. And for people who were being humiliated. And then finally, they issued enormous reparations, not as much per capita as Germany had required of other defeated powers, but a lot. And one of the ways to pay it back was to pay back the debt in non-gold-backed marks. So they printed a lot of money and they sent it to the French and British and it ruined the German currency and it ruined most of Europe too. But that was a deliberate act, by the way, that inflation idea that they would pay back what they owed other countries and indemnities and reparations in terms of cheap inflated German marks. So my point is that Yes, it was wrong for us to lay all the blame on one party because it was a complex, but they did. They were the one that invaded. They were the one that started the war. They were the ones that lost the war. They were the ones when they won wars, inflicted harsher terms on other people, and they could have lived with Versailles. And we did the worst thing in the world. It's very This is what Biden is doing, yelling and screaming at Russia, but being weak at the same time. It's going to end badly. Victor, you mentioned General Pershing and his desire to uh, continue into Germany. And I know I'm throwing this at you because I didn't let you know ahead of time that I might be asking this, but would you comment on General Pershing as a general? You are a military historian. How do you assess him as a military man? There was an older professor that my mother and father had when they were in college. And when he died, his widow gave a two-volume first edition, My Experience in World War I. I think it won the Pulitzer Prize by John J. Pershing. And I read it when I was 12, very dry. But there's certain strengths and strategies that come forward. So what was his good things that he did? He believed in a unified American command. And he was a master logistician. So we declared war in April of 1917. And we didn't do much until the fall. But within one year, we had landed 
by May of 1918, we had a million men in France. Think about it. And not one was lost crossing the Atlantic to U-boats. And by the end of the war, we had 2 million. We were landing them at 10,000 a day. It was an absolute stunning feat. And the British and the French demand that we fill in the gaps, that we take a division of 16,000 men and World War I divisions, I think, were 18 and even 20. And we fill them into the gaps of the French army or we spread them around battalion by it was, would have been destroying destructive of the American expeditionary force. So he resisted that. And he said, Americans are going to fight as Americans are going to carry an equal share. And he could do that because the arithmetic was radically changing as Britain and France were worn out from four years of war. We were fresh. And so he had enormous clout where he was a bad, and he was right about you're going to have to defeat with an unconditional surrender and occupy Berlin. That would be the only thing to end it, not diplomacy, not Versailles, none of that. But General Foch and Petain, then earlier General French and General Haig, they all went to Pershing and they said, now you may have the Springfield rifle and that may be very accurate. And your guys may be big, tough American farm boys. But if you send people over the top and lead them on head front charges into German entrenched position, you will ruin your army. We did it at Verdun. The British did it at the Somme. Don't do it. You have to have armor. You have to have rolling artillery strikes. You have to focus and very narrow. And he didn't listen. So we took enormous casualties in late 1917 and 1918. And we lost almost 120,000 dead in just a year and a half. So he was a great patron of George S. Patton, one of very few people who were. He helped Patton's career. He was promised to marry George Patton's sister. You know, his wife was very tragic. She died in a fire with all four of his kids, four or five of his kids. So he oh, lost his, yeah, he lost his whole family. But he was kind of a very handsome guy and dignified, and all the, the widows and single women in Washington were after him. And apparently he was going to propose to be Patton, and then he dumped her. And George Patton was very bitter about that. Well, Victor, we have time for one more question on today's episode. Um, we'll talk about Chairman Mao, and we'll do that right after these important messages. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So... What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, thank you for taking the time to uh, do these four special episodes while you're in uh, Israel. And this is the final question of the four. And it's not really much of a question, but it's a curiosity of all the podcasts you and I have done over the last couple of years. We never really had a conversation or I never really had. We don't have a conversation. I ask you a question, you answer. But about Chairman Mao, and I'm curious about your thoughts about him as I'll just call him a madman. You may disagree with that. I don't think you will. But as a historian, is he at the top of the heap of the of the truly evil sons of bitches of history. He's at the top, Jack. He's the grand killer of all humanity in all time. I don't know. I mean, the high numbers are 100 million, the low members are 30 million. And part of that was the revolutionary fervor between, you know, when he fought the Japanese and he fought Chiang Kai-shek. And then after he won in 1949, he had that, I don't know what they call it, the anti-right-wing movement or Sufi movement, and they killed just all the intellectuals and the dissidents. But the biggest thing was the famine of 1958 onward for, what, six years, where he tried to collectivize the farms and 30 or 40 million people died. And then we went right from that a few years later, 67 to 76, the Cultural Revolution, another 30 million died, cleansing out the so-called free thinkers. And so he was a monster and he ruined the economy of China. He turned it into a totalitarian state. He deliberately starved millions of people. And he was a monster, an utter monster. And my first introduction to the Mao cult was when was September of 1971 when I went to UC Santa Cruz and this guy walked by and he had those little Mao caps with this red star on. That was a big thing in the college days to be Maoist, not pro-Russian. You were Maoist. And my dad goes, wait, is there an all-star team here, Vic? These guys all have stars on their cap. I said, no, that's Mao's cap. He goes, Mao? Mao who? I said, Mao said, Don, they love him. My dad goes, oh, my God, they have posters and stuff? I said, yeah, in the dorms, they love him. Remember that, what was her name, Jack, the communications director for Obama, Dunn, Anita Dunn? She got, mm-hmm. she had to resign because they asked her who her hero, and she told those kids she loved or her big, the man she was most impressed with was Mao Zedong. Same. He was, see, he was a big cult figure that was supposedly the pure communist, not the Stalinist who hijacked communism. So he was a monster. He killed more people than any other person in history. And uh, I wanted to say something. The other day, I said more people had died in the last 30 years in World War II or 100 million or something like that. What I meant was the last, I should have said 40 years instead of 30 because 40 or 5. But it was really what I was referring to was that period from 67 to 76 when that cultural evolution had killed 30, 40, 50, and some higher. And then you add that onto the earlier famine. Right. And China alone killed more people than died in World War II in the post-war era. And then you have, that's not even, you know, adding in all of these other wars that have took place. No, he was a monster job. Just a personal question. Did your dad, who flew in the Air Force and under General LeMay, I I believe, did he ever... uh, Land in China for any reason? Was he ever there? Or did he just? No, he. They had based in China and India, and I think right. he had three flights there, 
they had conquered the Marianas and they built these three huge fields, Tinian and Guam and Saipan. And he was stationed in the big one, Tinian. I think he started flying out of Tinian on one of the first flights he got over there. He was trained in Nebraska. He had a first cousin whose mother died that they adopted, basically, Victor Hansen. They looked alike. They were very big Swedes. They all joined the Marine. They both joined the Marine Corps. Nobody wants to talk about the family, but one of them, I think it was my father, they were, a sergeant was picking on one of them on Victor, and they got in a fight, and my father struck, I think he did. I'd never ask him. So they brought him up and said, one of you dumb Swedes is going to take the blame. So he was the older one. He took the blame. Victor then went on to the 6th Marine Division and would be killed in Okinawa on the last day of Sugarloaf Hill, May 19th of 1945. And my dad was never the same after that. That's why I was named after him. And he was an only child whose mother had died in childbirth and my grandparents adopted him or brought him up. And then to punish my father, they had heard in the Marine Corps, they were taking people and putting them in this new experimental program. And my father, all he told me was, he said, well, that SOB, Commandant told me that he was going to get back at me. So he was going to put me in a death plane in Nebraska. So they sent me to Nebraska and all the B-29s were crashing, killing everybody. But he said, ours wasn't. And then they had this brilliant pilot named Allen B and they flew 40 missions from Tinian, the worst missions, you know, the, the March 10th fire raid. He flew into Kobe, flew all of them. And they were crashed land. I think that they were in Iwo Jima twice, shot down. He got the equivalent of the Silver Star because he went out right over a bomb bay with a screwdriver when they had a napalm bomb that didn't drop and it was burning the plane up. And he went out and walked over the catwalk with a screwdriver and really by hand got rid of this, this napalm bomb. But you mentioned Santa Cruz, you know, I'll just end with this anecdote. And I said that he had kind of a, very blunt. So I was graduating and my parents never really came over there. I don't think I didn't want them to come over there, not just because I was a teenager. I love my parents, but it was such a wacky place. And I think they felt bad that they had all won, saved money by putting us, my two brothers there. So anyway, they had the final graduation, 1975. They had a little dinner for people who won. They called it highest honors. They didn't believe in the elitist terms like summa cum laude. So they called it highest honors and college. And I had won these two honors with a lot of four or five others. So we had this dinner and we were sitting there and the person in charge, provost, was trying to be very diplomatic. And there was a Japanese American there, a very sweet woman, and her son was there. And she started, she said, I'm very happy to be here, you know, I came, but I, you know, I've had a very terrible life and I taught my son, I was in Japan, in Japan, meaning she was, she wasn't born in America and she was a Japanese citizen that had been naturalized after the war. So she was sitting next to my dad and she said, you know, these Americans were barbarians, they bombed. So my mom looked at my dad and he didn't say anything. And then <laughs> I, I, I saw the wine start to be poured. And I thought, oh, my God, I got to get out of here. Go, Dad, go. Go, yeah. Dad, go. And, and then this was my little graduation. I was a pipsqueak 20-year-old. And my mom yeah. kicked, kicked me under the table, whispered, could you please talk to your father and go take a walk? And then the woman said, and then, you know, they bombed him because they were war criminals. And they burned people up. 
and she went on and on. And then my dad was so bright red and he just interrupted. There was, you know, table provost and everybody there. He said, yeah. And we didn't finish the job quite because the war ended. Oh, she, wow. She looked what? Oh, oh wow. And <laughs> Another Dale so- Carnegie moment. <laughs> I know. And he said something that was very erudite. He said something. Could I ask you a question? And she said, yes. He was very angry at him when he said that we didn't finish the job. Very bad thing to say. And he said, two days after the bomb was dropped, I landed on a Japanese airfield. And one of 100 B-29. And she just turned, you know, you did? And he said, yeah, could I ask you something? Why didn't anybody come and shoot us? She said, what do you mean? She said, it was a Japanese military airfield. They had just surrendered, but why didn't they come and shoot us? Because at Pearl Harbor, it was, there wasn't war and, and they shot us mm-hmm. and they killed a bunch of innocent people and your country and you're a citizen because you were there and you, you didn't have any problem, but so you want to shoot us on December 7th, but you don't want to shoot us on September 5th of 1945. Could you please tell me why? Oh, my gosh. And she said, I don't know. And he said, I can tell you why. Because we had orders that if you did, we were going to not even land. We were going to take off. And we were going to go right back to Tenyon and load up and do it again. And again and again and again until you got the message. Wow. <laughs> Imagine just saying that. Wow. And then it was quiet. Yeah. And everybody was like tense. And then being UC Santa Cruz and touchy feeling, one of the parents said, oh, this is Mr. Hansen. I feel your war trauma pain. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so I thought, solution. And then my dad just couldn't let it be. Yeah. So then, then he went through the squad, the wings losses. And then there was Smokey. And he was in Thumper. And he flew over to Yokohama that raid, and they shot him down. And we watched him jump out of the plane with no parachute. And why oh, would you wear a parachute when they were going to behead you? Oh, so that was, that was the end of Thumper. Now, Dumbo was a different story. <laughs> he named all of the insignia of the V-29 crews. 11 right. men there, 11 men there. And he said, Mrs. So-and-so, you know, I started out with the 16 planes and we had 180 men and there were three left, 33 of us. And you know what? It was no picnic flying 1,600 miles at night to stop you people from killing us again. But you started it and we finished it. And then Damn. the final coup de gras. And we'll be happy to do it anytime you try it again. Damn. <laughs> so, <Wow>. so, <laughs> Victor, uh, you had a cool dad. You really know, did. <laughs> but, but the conversation ended, Jack, when I looked around, when I looked at my mom. Yep. And everybody was moving their chairs at increments of two or three inches from the table back away from this crazy nutty fresno area family farm and this demented father so then we walk by and he sort of says well son i think that went well uh, that was a nice party and you know what uh, everybody loves a history lesson that's right and he gave it wow he, he was oh, wow. i i really worshiped him and he wasn't racist at all my mother had fact as i said earlier just to finish during the Japanese relocation, by the way, signed by Earl Warren, but liberal Republican attorney general signed by a Democratic governor, signed by a Democratic FDR. My mom helped farmers. She was 17, student body president of her high school, and they tried to save as many Japanese farms as they could and 
pool their resources and keep them from being sold off. And they were very successful with a local town editor, Lowell Pratt. But anyway, so he wasn't a racist at all, but what he didn't have any tolerance, he would not stand for somebody to deprecate his country, not when his brother's cousin was slaughtered on, not only slaughtered, but shot after he was killed. He was up on, you know, Uh, they couldn't bring him down and he wasn't going to listen to that crap after all those people got killed and he shortened the war he felt and he saved a lot of Japanese and American lives and he would do it again in a heartbeat and not that he liked doing it he really was affected the rest of his life he told me but he wasn't going to listen to somebody lecture him and he said at one time I'm very sorry you were on the receiving end but we had been on the receiving end and we're not going to ever going to be on the receiving end again. You understand that? And so that was the end of it. And she stopped. Wow. Well, Victor, it's, uh, I, mean, I don't know you what to say. You mentioned the best year of my lives. I've thought of that movie yeah. because remember how Myrna Loy was kind of supportive of her husband when he got drunk? And he, yes. And, well, my yeah. mom was kind of that way. She would try to say. And then I thought. She goes, okay, there uh, your mom And then your we were mom loved, away, must have loved him. She, and then we were walking loved. by and my mom kind of winks at me and she said, right. <laughs> she's kind of laughing. So there he went. And so that was, she was, she was something else too. Well, anyway. All right, my friend. Well, that's really a special, different and special way to end uh, this podcast. We thank our listeners for listening. And if you've listened on iTunes, consider giving a, giving a rating. It's up to five stars you can do. And if you leave a comment, we know that we do read them. So thanks for listening. Victor, thanks for a very special story there and, and everything else you, all the other wisdom you shared today. And assuming I'm going to be talking to you when you get back from Israel. And until then, well, we'll be back soon, right? With another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks for support and listening to everybody and some of my crazy upbringing stories. <laughs> but it, it served a purpose and we all have to be very proud of our country, warts and all, and we're better than the alternative. We do not have to be perfect to be good. Amen. Right.